just past 7 o'clock, and what do you know? Gotta love Monday nights. Time for Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. And Ira, it seems like a lot of the media across the country and across the world kind of phoning it in because there's just really not that much going on right now. But we have one of our biggest shows ever because we don't quit on Ira on Sports. Up first... This is, gonna re- this is a really good interview. It's with Coach Wade Phillips. I think everybody knows who Wade Phillips is, but if we don't, fill us in. Um, well, I, of course, I want everyone to be safe and healthy and social distance. And this is, of course, we provide a lot of uh, enthusiasm for the show in terms of we bring on interesting guests and authors uh, that you can listen to and, and sort of get uh, think get your mind off uh, everything and just you know follow sports. So Coach Phillips is uh, one of the most famous defensive coaches in the history of the NFL. Uh, he's been the coach of, of six NFL football teams, won the Super Bowl with the Broncos, was the coach of the Rams in the last Super Bowl, a defensive coach that we make there. So it's great to have him on the show. And he's the son of uh, uh, Bum Phillips, who was the coach at uh, Houston Oilers. And then uh, also we're going to have Jared Diamond come on after that. Tell us a little bit about Jared. Jared Diamond's a sports uh, uh, baseball editor for the Wall Street Journal. He wrote a book called Swing Kings, and this is the whole history of how, why there's so many home runs in baseball, and not the juice ball, but just how these people have been. It's very interesting to learn about all the coaches that are not in the game, the uh, the people on the back roads with batting cages that have been transforming the entire baseball game. Yeah, and this is going to be super interesting as well. And then finally, the Bryan brothers, and these guys are quite famous in their own right. They're the greatest doubles team ever, by far. It's unquestionable. It's probably was undisputed that they are the number one doubles team, winning 16 Grand Slam titles and been number one in the world 10 years. And they competed at the beginning of the month in a, in a, in a, in a uh, tournament. It wasn't really a tournament. It was sort of an exhibition. But nobody knows who won, so you can actually watch it live and see it. But there's all these tennis players that are involved in it, and it's on CBS on Saturday. So we, it's great to have the Bryan brothers in because they just played at Delray. They've won the tournament six times. So it's great to talk about tennis to them. So we've got a lot coming up for you tonight, as well as uh, me and Ira's takes as we get closer and closer to the NFL draft. We're going to break down what could be, you know, a decade from now, one of the best wide receiver drafts ever. But Ira, first, let's talk a little bit about how uh, this crazy coronavirus is impacting sports. So, you know, you know a lot about the inner workings of, of these things, and especially the finances of this. And it seems like the NFL, you think, is in the best position to really go off without a hitch or just with some minor interruptions? Well, I think it'll be major interruptions, but the NFL, considering what they, the financial weight of the NFL and the ability to do whatever, and the fact that there is so much a television-driven uh, event, sports, that they could figure this out. And, and, it's, and it looks like they would go to maybe eight different sites and just put this on TV and just to, as video and, uh, and have watch people sit there and watch them and just tape the games. Uh, without fans. And they're, they're able to do it because they have, as I said, the wherewithal of the money. They have the broadcast partners. If college football, I do not, I can't envision college football playing in September. So that would open it up for the NFL to have games on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So really, it's the landscape is cleared for the NFL to be the dominant sports uh, that we're going to see for the entire fall. And I didn't know this. I always assumed there was something in place, but I didn't know for a fact. And you informed me there is some kind of contractor clause that right now the NFL can't play on Friday and Saturday till December. Um, because it's with their antitrust exemption that they're they're not allowed to play until December. You see some games in, in, on Saturday, but that's why you never see an NFL game on Friday. Um, but that now I'm sure the Congress would release that and let them play on Friday and Saturday and Sunday, and there would be no college football. So 
it's like during World War II, the NFL, that's when during World War II that, that they played. I mean, that's where they actually made their biggest gains was because Roosevelt said, no, we want to keep the NFL, keep playing. We think it's good to have them play. And after it came out, that they sort of, that's when they passed college football uh, in terms of uh, being the premier sport. So, Ira, uh, you know, another thing I didn't think about is I'm a huge hockey and baseball fan. But hockey and baseball would have a lot more trouble with this. And, and it makes sense when you said it because they need fans in the stands to support the sport, whereas football really doesn't need that. The television ratings for hockey and baseball are much smaller, and of course, regionally and nationally. And I think it'd be very difficult. The, the amount of money you'd have to go to set these up without the fans and do those things, it just seems to be in the way baseball plays so many games. It, it's much more difficult. I mean, I said football could actually put four teams at eight different sites, uh, quarantine the players, and quarantine everybody in the hotels around. I mean, if you go to these places, also the NFL is the best complexes. Yeah. Frisco, uh, what they're building in Las Vegas, Frisco, where the Cowboys play, they're like cities among themselves. They can clear the entire city out quarantine that area and have the and have the players uh, safe and 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 also have no fans and just film those games. I, I don't think that it'd be a most at Major League Baseball. I think would be find it very difficult to do that. I I can't envision baseball playing this year. And I think the NHL is going to have trouble because I think from financially to go do what they have to do to play without fans, considering they have international players, it's going to be really hard for them to get started. The NBA. I, they could do it. The NBA does have the money and the wherewithal. I'm sure the NBA will, will start in the fall. A lot less people to move around to. A less, <laughs> less people. And I think the NBA will do it in the fall. The question is when they would start. And I think that there would be a lot of pressure for them probably just maybe have a tournament in the in like September and then just start the season for the next year. Do something like that. But it wouldn't be like a playoff tournament. But they, they'd have to do that, the whole quarantining in certain in special areas. I mean, talking about like you going to Vegas and just taking an entire hotel and putting all the players in one place. But um, I think the NFL in the NBA, but I, I just cannot the, the logistics for Major League Baseball and NHL, and certainly college football, I think is impossible, I think for the, those sports to get started. You're listening to Iron Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Coming up, we've got Coach Wade Phillips, also Jared Diamond, and the Bryan Brothers. going to be a great show. Let's talk about it, though, Ira. This draft is kind of fascinating to me because you've got some of the best, I mean, th- there's literally a, almost a dozen guys that could all be number one NFL receivers. It's very not typical for this. And even in years where we do think that we're going to have some superstars, there's always a handful of busts, even in the first round. Let's go back 2014. This is one of the best drafts ever. Sammy Watkins went first uh, of the receivers. But then you saw Mike Evans, Odell Beckham, Kelvin Benjamin, Jarvis Landry. That was a pretty good draft. The best one ever Probably going to be 1996. You saw Keyshawn Johnson, Marvin Harrison, Terrell Owens, Joe Horn, uh, Monty Toomer, my boy from the Giants. That was a heck of a draft. This year, though, it could be just as good as these when it's all said and done. So let's talk about it. I also like that there's a little bit of um, shakeup at the top. A lot of boards have Jerry Judy at the top from Alabama, but he's not the top of every board. But let's talk about Jerry Judy because he seems like he's going to be a a sure shot uh, thing here. Well, Judy had this tremendous year for Alabama, uh, 77 catches, 1,163 yards, 10 touchdowns, and his ability to do everything, cross the field, running cross patterns, uh, catch the ball and run down the field, and also go deep and has the speed to do that. So he's, he's like the complete uh, wide receiver, and, and they're having potentially going to the 49ers and the Raiders. It's, it's interesting this year because so many teams desperately need wide receivers, and especially because it's a passing league, you're like, why is this in demand? And, uh, and there's some years where you've seen like two or three wide receivers drafted the first round and this year we might have seven or eight which is amazing and it's funny last year you know 
all the big names early last year didn't work out. And it was the later name guys, Hollywood Brown, A.J. Brown, that did work out, you know, year before that. Who's the only significant one from that draft? Calvin Ridley and still isn't even a superstar like these guys might come right in and be. CeeDee Lamb uh, really made a name for himself down the stretch. Um, you know, he's playing in the in the tournament and all that. And he looks like he's going to be a superstar as well. Well, he had 14 touchdowns for Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma. And uh, CeeDee Lamb is just running you know, catch without yards after catch. I mean, he still can break every tackle and seems to just fly. And he was great. I mean, was, he's, he, he and Judy have that, that speed. And it's like they worked in the drills. And a lot of these receivers are, are similar in terms of uh, how they run. But he has great hands. It's like he it does everything. It's sort of that type. That's what they're looking for. Those type of wide receivers that just do everything. And what a great, successful year he had for Oklahoma. And what's interesting about these is we've seen them on TV. Sometimes we have these wide receivers from these, these teams that you don't see as much. They're maybe from that, you know, even Jerry Rice from Mississippi Mississippi Valley State. No one watched him play. And then you never know some of these wide receivers like Calvin Johnson played for Georgia Tech. Georgia Tech had he never threw the ball. They were in the offense. They might throw like I think he had like 15 or 20 passes Mm -hmm. all year and he turned out to be a Hall of Fame wide receiver. So the point is is that but at least these people when I bring these names if you follow college football last year you're going to know who these people are. Terry um Terrell Owens went to uh, University of Tennessee Chattanooga. I think I mean these guys they don't always have to come from big spots. So this guy is kind of interesting to me, and he seems to be the one who could take the top off more than any. And I've seen Henry Ruggs go ahead of Jerry Judy and ahead of CeeDee Lamb in some of these mocks, so it's going to be interesting to see this first round. Henry Ruggs' speed is the fastest. He's the fastest. So you're looking for pure speed. He's the speed. new Tyreek Hill. Yes, pure speed, can do everything, and exactly. And I think that's what people look at him as, as Tyreek Hill. And, and in the in Alabama, now again, he has great numbers, but in Alabama, they had so many wide receivers. I mean, they had Judy and Ruggs, who people think are two of the best wide receivers. And they had Devontae Smith, another one who next year, if he came out this year, would be a, one of those others. So they, they, and also they had such huge leads in these games. And one yeah. reason why Judy didn't catch 130 passes is because they were blowing out most teams that they were playing. So that's that's what I think is interesting about Ruggs is if you're looking for that Tiger, if you, that's what you want, then he's definitely good. He could jump ahead. And I agree. Judy, Lamb, Ruggs, even Jefferson. You don't know when the draft comes. It's just whatever, what teams, you know, likes which one of these wide receivers. Yeah, Justin Jefferson got a ton of attention. It might have helped that he played with the quarterback who had the greatest season in college football history out of LSU. Well, 111 catches, 1,540 yards, 18 touchdowns. It seemed like he was making every big play for LSU. Now, remember, they have Chases or other. I mean, all these teams had great wide receivers, so they weren't just. I mean, they had other wide receivers they had to pass the ball to. But Jefferson just does it all, and his connection with Burrow was tremendous. And that was and the big time plays, the big time. You know, what's amazing about every one of these wide receivers is how many touchdowns they score. Their ability to catch the ball in the end zone, to make able to break plays, and to and to, and to, and to get the goal line. Let's talk about uh, Brandon Ayuk from uh, Arizona State. This is an, an intriguing prospect here. Well, what it's interesting about Brandon Ayuk is that he. Played with a team where the quarterback situation was in flux, so it wasn't as good. And then, so he only had 65 catches, eight touchdowns. But again, that's like one of those wide receivers. Like, well, if you put him on the Alabamas, if you put him on the LSU's, what kind of numbers would he put up? Mm-hmm. And I think that's where he falls back. So people are interested to see what he would do. I really liked T. Huggins a lot, and or T. Higgins. And this is a guy I thought it was going to be Judy and Higgins. One and two in this draft. Obviously, things have changed, but I still think Higgins could definitely be a premier number one. You know, from looking at them, and I've saw how many every one of Clemson's games the last two years, his hands are great. I mean, it seems like he he's just to me the best because I just 
never saw him drop a ball. I think he, I mean, a couple balls, but he just seems to be getting everything. I just like his hands, his ability to get open, and his route running are, are, are elite. So I really like him. I, th- I mean, I think any one of these guys could become a superstar in the league. And uh, Michael Pittman from USC, same thing. Well, Michael Pittman, he put up great numbers. When you look at his numbers, 101 catches, uh, 1,275 yards, 11 touchdowns uh, for USC. And I, was, I saw him play live twice. Wow, speed. I mean, again, you, you measure these speeds at the combine and you look at say it's a four two seven. But when you see it on the field and you see guys try to cover him and he's just just so much faster. When running with, with shoulder pads on and running with the fields with the cleats, it's just different than running in like, all the underwear Olympics. And I like <laughs> I think Pittman has that pure speed that uh, that teams are searching for. And there's also a lot more than just a forty time. It's route running. It's, you know what I mean? Footwork, things like that. And that's what you say when you gotta watch these guys. When you see cornerbacks and safeties consistently being baffled trying to cover these guys that's what i'm looking for um uh, lavisca chanel from colorado small school but this guy could be really good well, I didn't see Chanel play as much this year because I'm in Colorado. wasn't that good, but again, that's like one. Of, he's one of those other guys that's like like uh, Brandon Oyuk from Arizona State that uh, was sort of under the radar in terms of what they could do. And uh, but very good hands, excellent wide receiver. I mean, he's like a, we're we're more naming people that have people projecting in the first round. This is our eighth uh, player we've named. I've seen all eight of them top of the get in that first round. Yeah, no, I definitely have too. And then there's these guys are still good, like uh, Denzel Mims from Baylor. Oh, you've seen Denzel on T. I mean, Baylor had that great year and Nibs I mean there were some games where he was just unstoppable so and, and then people say well it's because the, the offense in the Big 12 was crazy and the defense is awful and those things like that but but Mims play great and, and, and I see I've seen him go as high as as uh, 20 22nd I mean you're right this draft will be intriguing because you look at Kuiper's mock you look at the CBS's mock you look at all the mocks they don't line up I mean many years no, you look nothing at these, does. <laughs> you look at some years and it's like everybody knows okay we can go but you go from this and you have people that some people think it's a first rounder and other people say third rounder so that's why it's going to be this draft will be very intriguing there is almost always a consensus number one wide receiver almost always and the last one i could think that didn't go was crabtree when hayward bay jumped him i mean it's always pretty predictable this year i don't know um jalen rager from tcu yeah, I mean, I've seen, I saw him play a bunch of games, and again, their offense sort of struggled in a lot of games, and and he played well. But that was him, and then Chase Claypool in Notre Dame. I mean, I've I've seen uh, Kuiper loves Claypool. He thinks it's going to be a, a first round pick, and 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 again, that was a situation where he just didn't get as many catches as uh, some of the big bigger names did. And I and I love KJ Hamler at Penn State. I've seen him yeah. play, and he's sort of that Tyreek Hill type of player too, return punts and do those things. And and boy, you know how NFL teams run their offenses now. I mean, when you think about why receiver they're not just catching the pass i mean they're, they're going to line up in the backfield they're going to yeah. do you want an odell beckham type yeah you're they're doing everything on the field i mean that's what that's and i think that's the versatility of these people i mean that's why when people talk about jalen hurts who's the quarterback we'll talk about that next week maybe we'll talk about the quarterbacks hurts can play a lot of different do a lot of different things and you could line them up in different ways and i think that's what they're looking for versatility from these guys that's why rugs i think you made a good point so rugs might go one because rugs seems to can do everything in the field i, I should have mentioned odell beckham minus the off-field antics. Yes. <laughs> so, and you, you brought up Chase Claypool. This is a guy, you know, on all the Giants insider boards, they want him in the second round. They, they, they're not letting him get past that uh, 36th pick, at least according to those guys. So before we wrap this up, let's talk about who we think is going to take a, 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 a wide receiver. In my book, the Jets are 100% 
offensive line or wide receiver there. I also think the Raiders want to make a big splash. And what makes a bigger splash than a big-name skill position player? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, the Raiders have got to – a must. I mean, that's what – you know, They need to put something around Carr. Right. I mean, that's why they brought Antonio Brown in last year. Yeah. I mean, they brought, they brought Antonio Brown in for that reason. They have Hunter Renfro, who's more of a – of a possession type receiver. I mean, they definitely need, I mean, it's a, it's a must. And I think the 49ers now losing Emmanuel Sanders, they desperately yeah. need a wide receiver. I mean, it's, it's just a must to get one. Um, Philly is another team that you got. And I keep seeing uh, Justin Jefferson mock to Philly. I don't know if it just fits their style, but that team, Carson Wentz did a lot with nothing last year. They could, I could see them making a big upgrade. And then even, um, you know, uh, Minnesota might be in the game now that they're just Adam Thielen who played, what, five games last year? And they lost digs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. these teams like Philadelphia, you're asking, like, who's who's the Eagles' number one wide receiver? You can't name him <laughs> if you want. If you, and, and, and certainly with uh, Minnesota losing Stephon Diggs, they're going to need. I mean, you have teams that want to throw the ball a lot and you can't name who all their wide receivers are. That's a problem. That's why Tom Brady was excited about Tampa Bay because he goes, I got two of the best five wide receivers on this team. He's got the best and, tandem. Right. And you don't even get that anywhere else. Who, you know what? Who we didn't mention, and you just said it, if you're going to be throwing, the New Orleans Saints. Granted, they have arguably the best receiver in football, but their depth chart is barren after that. So I could see them in the first round. Yeah, I mean, they have Ted Ginn Jr. was their, was a, was a second wide receiver. Yeah. So I de- Breeze and the fact you're going to throw the ball a lot uh, fits in perfectly. I mean, all these guys, I mean, that's one reason people forget that uh, Nigel Harry for, did not work out for Arizona State, didn't work out for the Patriots. What if he would have came in last year and was a, was been a superstar? Maybe Brady would have stayed with the Patriots. Yeah. Everyone had high hopes for him, but he got injured, got another injury, didn't seem to catch on. I mean, that was a bad draft. I mean, that was one of the worst drafts choices that uh, Belichick had. I mean, considering it probably maybe cost him Brady. Well, considering DK Metcalf went a round later and found success, and then like we said, we saw the Hollywood Browns, we saw the uh, AJ Browns, who had basically Pro, pro Bowl-type years in the third, fourth, fifth round. So I, I do think, that's why I do think there's a lot of margin for error, especially with NTL Harry being the first one off the board and kind of falling by the wayside. Um, Alright, Ira, anything else before we head into Wade Phillips? Um, we're going to talk about the Florida Derby. Oh, that's right. Um, Florida Derby was over the weekend. We never let uh, horse racing go on this show and this was a race that was very easy to pick and the betting public knew it here with Tis the Law. Well, Tis the Law won the Holy Bullock off stream, the Champagne Stakes. They ran this without any fans at all. It might be one of the last horses races running in terms of how the Kentucky Derby is set up. But uh, it was the owner of Tis the Law was the owner's people who you remember Funny Side. Barkley uh, Tag was the trainer. Jack Milton and Sagatoga Stable were, were that. So Funny Side was uh, the gelding that won the uh, Kentucky Derby, the Preakness from Belmont and went to Belmont and lost at the Belmont Stakes for the chance for the Triple crown but it was a perfect ride i mean manny franco did a great job it was right behind chivalry and, and ete indian right on the turn and just showed that great speed and just blew through it and won uh, comfortably yeah tis the law is someone that a lot of people had in their future pools as well at around three to one and you that might be a good price on derby day whenever that kentucky derby does happen let's get to wade phillips it's iron sports you're here on iron sports we're talking to coach wade phillips uh author of the book son of bum lessons my dad taught me about football and life with vic carucci uh from Diversion Books. Thanks a lot, Wade, for coming on uh, today's show. You bet, Aaron. So, Coach Phillips, you've coached at Oklahoma State, Kansas, Houston Oilers, New Orleans Saints, the Eagles, the Broncos, the Bills, the Falcons, the Chargers, the Cowboys, the Texans, the Texans, the Broncos again, and the Rams. So, are you really like 150 years old? I mean, it's just amazing. Like, how in the world can you? How did you? I mean, you, you really. This, this probably the great thing is that you probably are 150 years old, and you somehow figured this out. <laughs> well, uh, I don't know about the age, but, but uh, yeah, I've been with a lot of teams. But, you know, that's what coaching is. My dad always said there's two kinds of coaches, 
ones that have been fired and ones that are going to be fired. So. <laughs> so you grew up in Texas, and your dad, you know, Bum Phillips, was, uh, was a famous high school football coach in Texas. And, uh, and talk about high school football in Texas. I mean, he was on, I guess, one team, one high school team, and then he left to go to another team and then and were like the rivals. So he coached both rivals, and he was just a legendary high school coach. And talk about growing up in that environment and that what got you excited about football. Yeah, I mean, Texas football, you know, is big anyway. And my dad was kind of a hero as a, as a coach there. He, he uh, won a lot of games. And, you know, I grew up in one town that, that, uh, that we had a big rivalry with a town right across the railroad track. And um, we went around, went around the state. My dad coached at UTEP. And then he went back to high school, coaching in high school, went to the other town across the track. Uh, because he had beaten the other one, so that, uh, that's why they hired him there. Wow. So when you started coaching with your dad at Houston and with the Saints, you coached with him for 11 years, uh, and then you actually had your son, Wes, coach with you for the Cowboys and the Rams. So talk about coaching with your dad and then having the, the chance to have your son actually coach with you. Yeah, it's really unique. I mean, we, uh, I saw how it was, you know, uh, coaching coaching with my dad and uh, you know, I thought that was just the greatest thing in the world. And then uh, because he was kind of my hero and then uh, coaching with him. And then then I get to coach with my son. And and uh, I, from the other perspective, you know, I was so proud of my son. So I, it, uh, it was a neat, uh, a neat experience for me, and I, I enjoyed both, both of them for sure. So I'm a huge Steeler fan. I've grown up everything. And, and those years from 76 to 80 were my formative football years and some of the greatest games ever between the Steelers and the Whalers. And you talked about it in your book, Son of a Bum, uh, but Son of Bum. But uh, you talk about in terms of, you know, what those Steeler, the, the whole aspect of the Oilers and the Steelers and the Monday night football games and Earl Campbell, just so much excitement. It really was. It was a great time in Houston. The, the town just took to our team and um of course the Steelers were at one were winning four out of six Super Bowls in that era so they were really great but we uh we actually beat them at home every year they beat us in uh in Pittsburgh and then they beat us beat us in the championship game two years in a row but it was it was a different rivalry in that it was a friendly rivalry and I say I say that because um the first year we we beat Cincinnati at the end of the year the last game of the year that put uh, the Steelers in the playoff and uh, they all they sent us uh, <laughs> they sent everybody uh, Samsonite briefcases the whole team and and all the coaches because we had beaten Cincinnati to get them in the playoffs and then they end, end out went the Super Bowl so you know they were kind of nice to us and my dad was kind of guy that was friendly with everybody he and Bradshaw hit it off you know in fact he gave Terry Bradshaw a pair of boots before one of the games. <laughs> oh my God! I mean, you just don't you don't you don't see that happen anymore, for sure. So you got a chance. You you were coach. You have the record for being the coach, the head coach at six different teams. You've coached at ten on ten different teams, which is amazing. And you've been the interim coach three times. And we always talk in the, in the middle of the season. It's like, oh, people are going to make changes and they should get rid of the coach. And actually, three times you've been the inter, interim coach and stepped in that position. Uh, talk about what it's like to to be this quote interim coach because you see teams holding off and holding off, and not many people make those changes. But you you happen to be involved with it three different times. Well, it's um, 
it's hectic because usually when you go in as an interim coach, the team's not doing very well. So uh, it's hard to change it in the middle of the season. What you try to do is just keep the players playing hard and you know do the best do the best you can, but do the best they can. Try to win some games for them, but uh, it's usually pretty well set. You go in late in the year to to try to uh, try to be an interim coach, but um, the head head coaching. Uh, um, most of those jobs I got because I had been there, you know. So it's uh, they they recognize that, and I appreciate that. We're talking to Wade Phillips, the author of Son of Bum. It's available at Amazon. I mean, this is a great time to read books if people uh, have nothing to do. I mean, his career is amazing. He talks about so many different, uh, all the different teams he was involved in. And your story about your first Super Bowl was great. When you were the Denver defensive coordinator and you lost to San Francisco and and you just talked about the magnitude of the Super Bowl and how, and we just had the Super Bowl down here in in South Florida uh, last month. It seems like forever, but it was actually just last month. So sort of talk about what that first Super Bowl uh, meant and what was it like? Yeah, it was uh, it was a bigger game than I thought it was. In fact, when I when we won it at Denver, I, I did talk about to our players about how big the Super Bowl game was because uh, you know you don't realize it. I mean, because playoff games are, are big games, and every game is a big game, but the playoffs are real big, and even the championship game is a big game. But then when you get in the Super Bowl, uh, I didn't realize it, but, I mean, the first pass of the game that we played and Elway kind of threw a bad pass, it looked like it de- deflated our whole team. <laughs> Just one play. You know, the the uh, emotions were so high and so low. You know, I mean, you just went back and forth is what I learned from that first Super Bowl. So, And I told our guys about you gotta you got to keep an even keel throughout. And, um and we did that at Denver, and actually with the Rams, we did that. Uh, we played pretty good. We lost thirteen to three, but we played pretty good on defense in that game against the Patriots. I mean, you're considered probably the greatest defensive mind, uh, at least one of the greatest of all time. Uh, just you're, and you go Thanks. through. Well, it's totally well deserved. Um, you've. Uh, <laughs> Give us a little bit. You, you in the book, you spell out your philosophy on defense. But maybe in just a few, you know, a few seconds here, just describe in terms of what makes, you know, why you, what, what are the things that you do on your defense that has made you so successful everywhere you've coached? Well, we uh, we teach uh, our teaching progression is really good that we teach it fast, and that we can put in a defense. We, I've done it what. Uh, seven times in a row I think we, we've been in the playoffs the first year that I went somewhere and uh, so our teaching progression is really good I think uh, that we can get to talk to older players or young players and get them to play in without making mistakes and really you know the more mistakes you make the, <laughs> the bigger chance you have of losing so learning to win is really just controlling your mistakes and uh, so we try to teach them um, you know, it's a complicated game. I mean, it's not easy uh, because the offense is so complicated. So you got you you got to you got to get it taught. They got to know what to do, and then you got to have some players that can do it, and you got to utilize their talents. And you've had the opportunity to coach some of the greatest players. I mean, I don't think anyone's ever coached players like Reggie White, Bruce Smith, J.J. Watt, Von Miller, Aaron Donald. I mean, you have the Hall of Fame that you've coached. I mean. Give us some insight into what makes these players that does elite players, you know, they're the greatest players of all time. 
Well, they all, they all had great ability, but but uh, I, I think there's something. It's a tremendous will that they have to to do as do their best, to be as good as they can be, and that you know that separates them from a lot of players that had great ability, uh, and and most of them or all of them were real hard workers, you know. But they had a lot of pride that they wanted to do something better than everybody else, and. Uh, and I think that's the key thing that that all those guys you mentioned and uh, and, a, and several more that I've had that are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the, I wish I could teach it. You know, these wishes something you could teach. But but I think if somehow they're either born with that or they uh, they've worked up to it. But they're, they're all special that way. So you're the head coach of the Dallas Cowboys 2007 to 2010, and, and you're very complimentary towards Jerry Jones in the book. I mean, you seem to, to like have liked working with him and, and also your experience there. Uh, give us some insight into those Dallas years and, and working with Jones. Yeah, he's a, um, he's a fun guy. I mean, number one, he, he's a fun guy to be around. He's a family guy, which you're always teaching in, in football, that, you know, that we're a family and we want to do things uh, – you know, as a family, um, you know, fight for each other, that kind of thing. His, he, his two sons and, and daughter are both in the, um, you know, with the Cowboys and work with the Cowboys. So he's got, he's got a great family atmosphere, and he brings you into his family. You know, so he treats you like one of his family, which, which I always appreciated. And the one thing is that you're talking about, you know, we talk about who's a player's coach and is it what kind of coaches are. And you were, you've been known throughout your entire career as, as a player's coach. But you've, you've been proud about that. Your father was proud about that. Talk about what it means to be a player's coach and, and how you approach that, that concept. Well, my dad always said, you know, he'd rather play for somebody that he liked than somebody he didn't like. <laughs> you, know, that he, you know, and I, it made a lot of sense to me, you know, so... Uh, I think the players can like you, and if they like you, then you know they say, "Well, he's a players' coach." But the the most important thing is they respect you. They respect what you say, and uh, and that's the key behind being a players' coach. That's a good one, or a players' coach that is um, gets an undisciplined team because uh, if they like you and you and you teach them self discipline, number one, but uh, discipline, then then they are disciplined. So there's there's a concept that uh, people think, well, if he's a player's coach, that they're not disciplined, but that's not true. We're talking to Wade Phillips, author of Son of Bum, Lessons My Dad Taught Me About Football and Life, one of the, the greatest coaches in terms of defensive coaches in the history of the NFL. And your signature year and win was when you, with the Super Bowl with Peyton Manning at Denver. Uh, I was at the game. You beat Pittsburgh. That was a, a tough loss. And then you had to play New England and stop Tom Brady right after that and then beat Carolina in the Super Bowl. Talk about that Denver team and, and just finally, after all your years in coaching, uh, to get that Super Bowl championship. Yeah, it was, a, it was a great accomplishment for that team. But just like you said, the, the people we had to play to get there, to beat to get there, were were tremendous players and teams but beating Pittsburgh and then beating Tom Brady uh, and and New England you know uh, that that in itself is a, is a great accomplishment but then we played Carolina who had the MVP Cam was the MVP of the league and they, they had averaged 40 points a game in the playoffs so you know that was a 
uh, that, but that was a great defensive team that we had, and it was, you know, obviously it was the players that we had, Vaughn and Demarcus especially. And, uh, but we had the no fly zone they call themselves with the uh, you know with with Akeem and Harris and Roby and and T.J. Ward and uh, those guys were great. I mean, we were number one in pass defense the whole year, and we also were uh, gave up three point three per rush, which was number one in the league. So. Uh, that that was one of the great defenses, maybe one of the great defenses of all time. Right, right, and and you've really faced the legendary quarterbacks. I mean, you had Manning on your team that year, but you faced him again. Talk about what makes Manning and Brady and and even Drew and Drew Brees so special. What do they do? I mean, you're you're there sitting and planning and scheming against them, and talk about what makes them so special. Uh, well, they they uh, they know the game. They know what they know what defenses are doing. They're they're great at they're great at changing things. You know, a lot of quarterbacks can just play the game and and throw the ball well and so forth. But all those guys you mentioned, if you're bringing a safety blitz, you're in trouble <laughs> because they know it. Because they change the protections. They they you know they know who to go to quickly. They 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 audible to the right play. Even you know Peyton was good at, at uh, audible in the running plays. And Tom Brady would come up and quick snap you, uh, those kind of things. So uh, Drew Brees the same way. I mean, they they all uh, a step above everybody in, as far as knowing the game, I guess, and knowing and recognizing what defense they're going to try to do. We uh, we've been talking to Wade Phillips, Coach Wade Phillips, uh, who author of Son of a Bum uh, Lessons. My dad taught me about football and life on, from Diversion Books. One last question, Wade, you've been coaching for many for decades and with elite defenses and they keep changing the rules and make the offenses you know so it's easier and easier and easier how have you been able to adapt after all these years and still have these elite defenses uh good players first you know uh, i've worked for a lot of good head coaches too which uh, you know i mean it's not just me i think it's a, the head coach that influences the team the most as everybody knows so uh but uh, like I say, our teaching progression is good. We we, uh, we cater to the players what they can do and not what the scheme does. Or not the, the scheme's not the important, most important thing. The players within the scheme are, are the most important. So we we try to because when I went to uh, the Rams, you know, they said, well, they've been playing a four three, and Aaron Donald's the best three technique in the league. You know what? You know, is that going to hurt him? Well. He was defensive player of the year two years in a row with us, and had 20 sacks, the most of any interior lineman of all time. So you you take what they do and let them do it, the great ones I'm talking about, and then you you work around that as far as your scheme is concerned. I think that's the key. Well, thanks a lot, Coach. I know you're very busy, and uh, and we're definitely if you're looking for a good book to read, Son of Bum: Lessons My Dad Taught Me About Football and Life. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I really appreciate it. You bet. I, I enjoyed it. Uh, check in at, at Sonabum on Twitter and let, let me know if, uh, if you like the book or if they like the book. Well, I love the book, so all my listeners should read it. It's a great, easy read, and I read it all day on Saturday, so it was perfect, so I recommend it. But, yes, definitely, everybody, if you read it, then go on Twitter and, and, and let Wade know about the book. But uh, thank you for writing it, and it's a, great time. it's a great time to be reading a book like this. I appreciate it, Ira. Thank you. Nice interview. Very good job. Great stuff from Wade Phillips. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, let's talk to Jared Diamond. 
All right, this is Ira from Iron Sports. We're talking to Jared Diamond, author of Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution by William Morrow. Morrow he's all, Jared is the baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports, Jared. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I hope you're doing, uh, staying safe and healthy out there. Yeah, same to you, same to you. Well, Jared, it was uh, definitely to take my mind off everything. I read your read the book Swing Kings. What a book! Uh, it's available, of course, on Amazon and, and on you can order it on Kindle and every everything. It's a tremendous book. But I learned a lot in this book. I mean, this is one of these things where I'm like, I can't, and I follow sports. I have a sports show. I should know everything. And, and I learned things in this book that I had no idea that was going on. And I guess part of this book was meant because you were yourself was searching for the perfect swing. And it's sort of like, you know, we're down here in West Palm Beach, we're talking about golfers, but that sort of drove you to, to, to analyze the whole swing industry in baseball. Yeah, I've been... Look, I think I think anyone that's ever played baseball or any sport probably at some point in his or her life had a day when everything clicked, uh, when uh, they had that great game on the mound or scored 20 points in a basketball game. And for me, playing baseball my whole life, I had a day when I was about 15 years old when I, uh, for reasons I'll never understand, had a perfect swing and just had an unbelievable day. I launched the ball three times in a row into places on the field I had never hit a ball before or after. And it sort of haunted me uh, for the rest of my life, trying to recapture that day, that moment. Now, you know, I, I grow up, I end up covering baseball for the Wall Street Journal, and I start hearing about this cottage industry that's sprouting up of these outsider, independent swing doctors that are somehow working with professional players, even though, they themselves never played pro baseball, never coached in pro baseball, and yet had the opportunity to work with major league players. And I thought this is a fascinating story that should be told. And if and maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get the chance to to learn a few things myself. And fortunately, these coaches were nice enough to let me get in the cage, uh, embarrass myself, but they didn't you know admit how terrible I was and tried to help me. Uh, and there was a reason for it. Uh, I still get to play baseball once in a while. It's a perk of a job. We have a, a annual New York media versus Boston media baseball game, one at Yankee Stadium, one at Fenway Park. It's a real thrill, and I desperately wanted to try to hit a ball far in one of those games, and uh, I can't exactly – I can't reveal uh, how I did. Just have to read the book and find out. <laughs> so, to help our listeners in terms of what it is, the, the, the classic baseball swing, can we say, is the Ty Cobb, the George Brett, the Wade Boggs, that type of swing, the downward swing. And why did that develop to become the quote swing of baseball that we've used for hundreds of years? Yeah, that's the swing that we were. I, I was certainly taught in the league, and I bet that's been the case with but everyone that's played Little League for the last, you know, 75 years has probably been heard at some point. You want to swing down. You want to hit the top of the ball. You want to stay short to the ball. And then the ideal was to hit the ball hard on the ground or low on a line, up the middle, ideally. And that was sort of the ideal swing. And this was taught by everybody back in the day, including uh, the first real celebrity hitting coach, Charlie Lau, who rose to prominence in the 70s and 80s. It was sort of a – he was the first uh, – really the first celebrity hitting coach who taught – this kind of swing. And there's a bunch of reasons as to why. If you go back far enough into the beginning of baseball history, the very beginning, the dead ball era, the early 20th century, uh, it made sense to do that. The ball was not designed to fly far 
in the air. Uh, home runs were not really part of the game. Fields didn't have fences, or if they did, the fences were sometimes incredibly far away. Uh, so there was really no incentive to hit the ball in the air. The incentive was hit the ball on the ground because that was how the ball traveled. That's why it was called the dead ball era for a reason. Also, infielders didn't wear gloves back then, so it was very hard to field. If you look at the history of baseball, the seasons with the most errors, they are pretty much entirely between the, you know, the years of 1880 and 1920, all of them, because good luck trying to field a baseball with uh, no gloves. <laughs> so that's where it started, and that just sort of continued on and on throughout baseball history. This was the ideal swing, hit the ball down, hit the ball on the ground, uh, and that has changed dramatically in recent years, thanks uh, in part to some of these really renegade coaches that I wrote about in this book. But you did talk in the book about a little blips on the screen. Well, there are big blips. One is Babe Ruth. And you, and I love the comment when you talked about Cobb and Ruth were arguing over who, you know, about the different game, about what Ruth was doing, because he was different outside what he, what he was hitting the ball up. And then Ted Williams and Ted Williams had the same type of swing that we're using today back in the, you know, you said you said in the book, The Science of Hitting uh, on page 47, he wrote up and away. So the point is that there were two of the greatest players to ever play the game are doing what they're doing now. But somehow it just didn't get adopted. And I'm surprised that about that. Yeah, that was one of my biggest questions I went through this. Start with Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth uh, turned the home run into the attraction that it is. I would argue that the home run remains, to this day, the most impressive, most sort of inspiring, captivating feat in all of American sports. It is the home run. It captured people's imaginations uh, for over for a century. And it started with Babe Ruth. Babe Ruth made the home run exciting it made he made baseball what it is in part because he came started hitting home runs was in a constant i wouldn't say a feud because they weren't actually arguing but a philosophical feud with ty cobb who was the great sort of pre live ball era hitter who hit the ball on the ground and and sort of guided the ball with his bat and was real artist you know ty cobb was an artist babe ruth was more of a blunt fourth instrument in some ways and and ty cobb he resented Babe Ruth in some ways because he felt that baseball, the game that he grew up playing in the early 20th century, from an aesthetic standpoint, he played it the right way, and Babe Ruth was just all about power. That <laughs> wasn't what baseball was supposed to be about. Clearly, we know who won uh, based on attendances and who became uh, you know, an all-time American figure in Babe Ruth. And then comes Ted Williams years later in the 40s and 50s, in 30s, late 30s, hitting all these home runs hitting the way he did, he wrote a book in 1970 called The Science of Hitting, where he says, essentially what I just said, which is, you were probably taught that the ideal swing is down or level, but in reality, the ideal swing is slightly up on a 10-degree angle, and I tried to hit every single ball I ever hit in the air. So I thought, well, why did that not become mainstream? Ted Williams wrote about it 50 years ago. Well, there's a few reasons, but I think the most compelling one is that for, for whatever reason, People said, well, that's Ted Williams, and Ted Williams is a freak. Ted Williams is different. A normal, mere mortal can't do what Ted Williams does. That might work for you with your superhuman vision and sort of just general natural ability, but a real normal human being needs to hit this way. And that makes no sense, uh, obviously, because what other industry do you not model yourself after the best 
that's what I would do in pretty much any other field. Yet in baseball, that wasn't the case for a long time, except uh, for the people that sort of were aware that maybe we should be teaching this. And they were kind of forced to the outside uh, until now. We're talking to Jared Diamond, author of Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution. And in the past year, over a thousand home runs were, were hit uh, more than, than the, the previous record, which just shows what's happening with baseball with home runs. And of course, we had more strikeouts than ever. But the one thing we're down here in West Palm Beach with the golf, talking about golf, and uh, everybody has a swing coach. Everybody. And then the swing coaches in golf for the pros, there's the Butch Harmons and the Hank Haney's, and, and it's natural to have coaches. But in baseball, it's not like it was almost like, I mean, people were going to these people that we're going to get into that you're going to talk about. It's like, you know, back alleys and, and batting cages after hours uh, down down abandoned roads. <laughs> it, was, it's, it wasn't common. And it's like, oh, no, you've got to use our coach that we have on our team. Don't use anybody else. Whereas you see it in basketball and football. Everybody has there's coach passing gurus and shooting gurus in basketball. And of course, golf coaches. For some reason, baseball was different. It is weird. In, in fact, in the introduction, the prologue to the science of hitting, Ted Williams' book, he writes that one of the, maybe the primary reason or one of the primary reasons he wanted to write a book at all was because he felt that the golf swing had been subject to great scientific study about how to do it better, and the baseball swing had never been held up to that kind of scrutiny. So Ted Williams felt that way 50 years ago about comparing the golf swing to the baseball swing, which I think is really interesting. Uh, baseball is a weird culture where it's extremely insular. Uh, the only way to sort of work in baseball for most of baseball history was to have played Major League Baseball yourself. If you didn't play baseball yourself, you were essentially viewed as not qualified to coach it. The, the qualifications for coaching in Major League Baseball for most of its history was very simple. It was you played Major League Baseball and you were friends with the manager. That was it. Those were the only... Those are the only pieces of criteria, and that was it. Um, that's changed now, but for a long time, that's what it was, and golf uh, was ahead of baseball in this way, and many other sports were. It took, uh, it took way too long for baseball to recognize that playing and teaching are different skills and maybe should be done by, in some cases, different people. So the one of the you feature four or five of these gurus, but they are very strange people. I mean, Craig Wallenbrock, who you call the Oracle of Santa Clarita, who I have never heard about. And when you read the book, you're like, well, he is the master of this whole new swing. I mean, he, what a, he was selling sugar and corn syrup to bakeries and dairy companies. Um, he started out throwing batting practice for some baseball pitchers. And now suddenly he's the one who, and it's, and it's like when people train with him, what's so interesting in the book was you talk about how people would go to him, they would work with him and they come back and they couldn't tell anyone. I'm not going to tell you why I'm swinging so well. And, uh, but it was like they, all of them, Tuke Bob, Tuke Bobby, Tewksbury had all these, they were, they were just strange out of the mainstream people and baseball just, and people even, who trained with them could tell people in baseball what they were doing. It was, that was the culture for most of baseball history was if you worked with someone from the outside, someone like Craig Wallenbrock, you essentially had to keep it quiet because it was dangerous. You, it would be seen as disrespectful to the team. Somehow it would be seen as radical. Baseball doesn't really care for radicals. Uh, baseball likes is a quite conservative culture in many ways. And to be sort of that outside of the mainstream in baseball is dangerous. Uh, at least it was for much of the game's history. Craig Wallenbrock is sort of the definition of a of a radical. He is a fascinating, fascinating individual. Someone that 
I, I was so thrilled to have a chance to write about because he's just so interesting. He quit baseball when he was about 20 years old, moved down to the coast in San Diego, becomes a full-time surfer, described himself as a, quote, pot-smoking hippie. <laughs> and that was the guy that would become, to me, the godfather of everything that's gone on in, with the baseball swing. He was working with so many great players throughout the 90s and 2000s, quietly worked with guys like Chase Utley and Michael Young and Ryan Braun. Uh, it's a long list of just players that he was working with, Paul Canerco, working with that no one knew. And it took uh, until the last six or seven years where anyone in the mainstream knew about Craig Wallenbrock. And uh, again, I don't want to spoil too much about the book, but suffice it to say that in the baseball industry now, everybody knows who Craig Wallenbrock is. <laughs> well, and you mentioned how it was like when, well, just going to focus on Wallenbrock for a second. Is about So he worked with J- Castro, Jason Castro, and Castro starts hitting well. And then J.D. Martinez is on, Martinez is on the, the Astros team is like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And he kept like hammering Castro for months. Like, what's your secret? What's your secret? And Castro, you know, finally was worn down and admitted, you know, where he's learning it from. And it was like, so not even though it wasn't like Wallenbrock is going on uh, TV and talking on MLB network or anything, or people are talking about him. It was like so underground in terms of what you could do to get it. And it was like, and it took all these players. You mentioned Doug Latta with Marlon Bird and working with with these players that everyone thought was done and they started playing great. And then people were like, what's the secret? Why are you hitting it like this? Where are you learning this? And that's how the word got out. Yeah, it was really a word of mouth thing. It sort of spread and spread. And Jason Castro telling J.D. Martinez about it is really where it started because J.D. Martinez uh, was revolutionary. What he did, the, the success J.D. Martinez has had after working with Craig Wallenbrock is it's truly unbelievable. Uh, J.D. Martinez was he was done. His baseball career, major league career, was based on the verge of being over. He just was not having success. Uh, he was struggling. He was not going to make it uh, until he met Craig Wambach. And then he came back after working with Craig Wambach and has been a superstar ever since, which is absolutely incredible. It shows the, what you can do with better technique. But once J.D. Martinez started talking about Craig Wambach, he was really the first one to do so publicly in the mainstream. Uh, it was out there, and it's what I first learned when I first started learning about Craig and these stories. And uh, it turned out JD was not alone. We're talking to Jared Diamond, Swing Kings, the inside story of baseball's home run revolution, because everybody thinks it's like the ball. And you mentioned how like the ball change has something, but it's definitely how these batters are, are taking approach to swinging and. And so all these gurus are there and they're helping people with words getting in. But and I know you don't want to give away the whole book, but it definitely was this series where Wallenbrock at points, you know, the White Sox had him in their organization and then just, you know, told him to go away. But there was that that and you would, But I thought that more with all these analytic guys that have been coming into baseball the last four or five years, that, that they would have embraced this new type of, of teaching. But it seems like they, you know, it, it took a while to get the Wallenbrock ideas into actually being coaches. It did. Craig Wallenbrock uh, was, through a unusual sort of situation, was brought into the White Sox organization back in uh, 2005, and essentially was not. He basically just wasn't welcome, and he was quickly dismissed. Sort of an interesting story how that all went down. Um, but what ended up did happening was those outsiders we were talking about from the Moneyball era, they were the ones that eventually had and openness to these other kind of coaches. It took time. It didn't happen right away. 
but it did happen. It, it did happen eventually. Um, these were sort of interesting people who had one time been outsiders themselves at one point in their lives, these outside GM candidates who came in after Moneyball came out. And they started saying, well, you know what? I was an outsider once. Maybe there's uh, outsiders that we could bring into other areas of the organization. And they were the ones who started bringing these people in. It took a long time, but it did happen. It's happening now. Yeah, and you, what I'm interested in is that all these, quote, outsiders, I mean, how much, I mean, these players are making hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts, $20, 30000000 million a year, and it's, they're getting it because of their swing. And you would think that the, that the teams themselves would have invested more into this. And also, you, the way these outsiders where you have them, they're like, you know, as I said, Wallenbrock's in, in Lada's gyms, and they're, they're just batting cages in the middle of nowhere. They aren't at these famous tech... Like, when you think about, like, Tim Grover used to work with Michael Jordan, had these great complexes. They're, they are... Like, how much were they charging? Like, were, you would think that they would be getting millions of dollars from the, all these players because, really, the swing is what's making these players their money. Huh. They were not. Many <laughs> of these guys are just so thrilled to have major league clients start amplify them that they were happy just to, uh, to have that and sort of use it as uh, marketing, essentially. You know, that wasn't always the case. These guys are getting paid. Uh, certainly not as much as the players, but... These were guys that really changed baseball in a really profound way. And someone like Greg Wallenbrock absolutely does deserve uh, everything that he's finally getting because the success that he's had with so many players over the years, it is truly incredible. But, yeah, it took a long time to happen for him. Do you see anything? I mean, your book focused on the hitting side of it, and you you hinted a little bit in about pitching. But where do you see? Are there where are those pitching gurus that might be now able to counterbalance the hitting gurus that are out there? Oh, they exist. Uh, you look at places like Driveline and some of these other uh, outside places. Oh, they're out there for sure. And now that hitting is sort of had having its moment, pitching is going to have to respond like it always does. Baseball is, as anyone knows who follows the game, is this never-ending cat-and-mouse game uh, with, with these two groups trying to one-up each other. And pitchers have had the advantage for a long time. Hitters are just now finally starting to sort of close that gap a little bit, and the moment they do, pitchers will come right back and uh, close it again. That's, it goes like on like that forever and ever and ever. It's one of the beauties of baseball, but in all aspects of the game, because of technology and because of all this other stuff, uh, it's happening in unexpected places. And that's what fascinated me so much about the story at all was the idea that innovation sometimes happens in places you don't expect, not just in baseball, but really in any industry. And sometimes the most interesting innovation happens in the place you least expect. Well, I mean, your book was fantastic. I encourage everybody. It's on, available on Amazon, on uh, Kindle, I'm sure, Bar- you know, Barnes & Noble Online, all the different things. The book is called Swing Kings, the Inside Story of Baseball's Home Run Revolution. It's uh, William Morrow Press. Uh, Jared Diamond is the national r- baseball writer for the Wall Street Journal. Well, Jared, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, and thanks to everyone out there. I know these are tough times. Uh, this book is, you know, the 10 millionth most important thing going on uh, in the world right now but you know for people who are in the position to check it out i hope it provides a little bit of a nice distraction from everything else going on in the world and a taste of the game that we're all missing right now 
Well, I appreciate it. It's a great book. Too. It's a, it was a great read, and you can just get immersed in it. And uh, as I've been encouraging all my all my listeners, uh, read books, read books with your children and your grand your grandparents. Everybody should be reading it. So, like a, this type of book, you should be reading like chapter by chapter, and then talking about it when you're done. It's a chance to get back to reading, and because uh, you're you know it's just stuck in a home and nothing to do, but you think you can read read a book, and and I think that's great. And your book is fantastic. So again, thank you so much for coming on Iron Sports. Thank you so much. Thanks so much from Jared Diamond. You're listening to Ira on Sports. This is the True Oldies Channel. It's time to bring in the Bryan brothers here on Ira on Sports. This is Ira on Sports. We have uh, Bob and Mike Bryan, the famous Bryan brothers. Uh, we know them well from Delray Beach. They won the title down here six times, but they competed on April 4th. They competed earlier in the month, and it will be shown on CBS on Saturday, April 4th, the World Team Tennis. Uh, guys, thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports, and tell us a little about uh, at this event that we're going to see that nobody knows who, who won or who lost. Yeah, it's, it's called the yeah. WTT yeah, All-Star uh, we played down event. We in San Diego a few weeks ago. Show on CBS. And it was uh, a gathering of a, of a bunch of tennis players in La Costa, California. A lot of big names like Sharapova, uh, James Blake, Marty Fish, Madison Keys. Uh, a ton of names came together, and we broke up into two teams. Yeah. Formats. We had mixed doubles, men's singles, women's singles. Um, yeah, men's doubles, women's doubles. So it was it was a cool, fast-paced event, um, a lot of fun, and it, it should be uh, cool for people to watch. So this was taped before um, all the shutdowns and the quarantine. So this was, you did everything the right way in terms of, but nobody knows in terms of who's won and yet to see. Now, what are some of the play? who are some of the players going to be in this team format? Well, you have, um, you have Madison Keys. She was on our team. Um, it was Team Ryan Brothers. Uh, she was our most we had Taylor Townsend, who made the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open. And then also on our Sam Query, uh, one of our buddies from Southern California, um, semifinals at Wimbledon. And then on the other team, you had Harrison, you had Monica Puig, who won the gold medal, um, singles from Rio. And, um, and then you had James Blake and Marty Fish, uh, two, two American legends. And um, it was it, yeah, Harrison. Uh, from Texas, so um, it was two two uh, pretty star-studded teams, and um, yeah, we had a lot of fun. Uh, but it was yeah, right before everyone, so it was kind of the last last test to be played before we all went. So we're talking to the Bob and Mike Bryan of the famous Bryan Brothers about the World Team Tennis Celebrity All-Star Match presented by Barefoot Hard Seltzers. It's going to air on CBS on Saturday, April 4th. It was taped at the beginning of the month. Um, so, guys, you are the quintessential, the number one doubles team of all time. You have been 438 weeks. You ranked been number one in the world. You've been, at, at the end of the year, been ranked number one 10 times, 119 titles. And this is your last, this was your last year. You're retiring at the end of the year. Uh, talk about in terms of your interest in getting into doubles in the first place and to becoming, did you, you did, did you set about like, this is what we're going to have? Like what, what was the motivation for you to become this all time great doubles team? Well, we always love playing together. You know, we've been playing tennis uh, since about two or three years old. Our, our parents are both tennis pros. But uh, throughout the juniors, we played singles and doubles. Um, I, I would say that we probably preferred always just playing on the same side and, and playing together. And, uh, I mean, Bob went on to be the number one junior in the country in singles. We were the number one team in doubles, and he went on to win the NCAAs. But when we turned pro, we uh, – 
really just loved traveling together, playing together, and we had huge goals of trying to be, you know, number one in the world, winning the Olympics, playing Davis Cup, and we just had way more satisfaction um, doing the doubles things. Um, and we've been working on doubles since a young age. Um, it, it requires quick hands, uh, you know, great communication, which helps because we're twins. But um, it was just our thing. It, was just, it felt like our calling. Um, and we just really love doing it for the last, you know, forever. Um, and, and, you know, this is our last year on tour. You're right. And um, hopefully we get to actually play a little bit and finish this thing off right. Uh, we're supposed to play our last tournament at the U.S. Open. So, Mike, you're left-handed and Bob is right-handed. Did you, did you guys decide that? I mean, that's weird. You're, you're twins, but one of you is left-handed and one is right-handed. Was that a decision your parents made? I think your mom is, was, a tennis, was a tennis player and also your mom and dad are both instructors. So did they do that on purpose? Uh, I would yeah, say they, they didn't smart, plan that. But they didn't plan that out. <laughs> so, and then we'll ask no, this. No, as mirror, as mirror image twins, um, a lot of times lefty righty combo. I mean, it helps a lot for doubles. Um, having you don't have to serve in the sun. Um, you can use the cross breeze to your advantage. So, if you look at um, the history of, of doubles in tennis, a lot of the best teams are lefty righty. Um, that combination, but. Yeah, our parents both played tennis. Mom was a good pro. Um, our dad was number one on his college teams. So, Mike, uh, a question to you is, when you when you started in terms of, you guys have never played, I mean, I saw in juniors you would actually, uh, f- um, whatever, you would forfeit the match when you had to play, or default, uh, when you had to play each other. Did you guys ever play in a match before? Yeah, well, until about the age 16, we uh, would meet in the finals of all the tournaments in California, even uh, nationally. And our parents never wanted us to actually compete when it really mattered because they didn't want one twin to actually feel like he was better than the other twin. <laughs> and uh, they were really kind of emphasizing our, our relationship. And with twins, it's very delicate. And, you know, we're, we're living in the same room. And um, it's tough to be number one in the world, per se, if you're number two in your bedroom. <laughs> that, that was their whole philosophy. So that's... <laughs> so, so Bob, in terms of in terms of tennis, t- talk about you know we're, we know you well from Delray, and you guys just won that tournament here, another great victory. You won it six times. Uh, you played all around the world, but talk a little about the Delray tournament. I love going to it. A lot of my friends do. It's it's just a great tournament. Just talk about your experiences down here in Delray. Yeah, I mean we've played really well. Only I think six is the, the highest number of tournaments we've ever won at, at one specific um, city, and so Delray has been our most successful spot. Um, and then also down in at the Hard Rock Stadium, uh, we've won that Miami Open six times. We love playing there because of the fans. Um, I'm living in, in Hollandale Beach, and um, i got a lot of friends and family that come and support us. We spent a lot of time in Key Biscayne when we were juniors um, at the USCA National Facility there. So we've been coming to Florida our whole life, and uh, for some reason – the weather and the fans, and it all it all comes together for us uh, when we play down there. We're talking to Bob and Mike Bryan, uh, World Team. They're part of the World Team Tennis Celebrity All-Star Match presented by Barefoot Hard Seltzers. They're on CBS on Saturday, April 4th. You can watch it at 1.30 p.m. You can actually watch an event that you don't know what happens on TV, so it's going to be exciting for that. But, Mike, talk a little bit about... Um, in terms of doubles, we're starting to see some of the top women began coming into doubles. I mean, when I grew up, of course, the Macros played. Um, or do you do you see a trend maybe that some of the that's the top singles players are going to start to play doubles more, or is it probably going to be the same way it's, it is right now? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we hope so. I mean, the rules are set up where um, with the shortened format, it encourages the top singles players to want to jump in and play the doubles. Um, you, see it, you see it at the, the Master Series event. It's really tough at the slams when, um, you know, they're playing the full format, two out of three sets, and players are really focused on, on the singles there, the, the top singles guys. But, um, you know, we, we love uh, in the, on the men's store, we just were down to any wells. It, you know, it obviously got canceled, but the draw was stacked. Um, I think, you know, Djokovic was going to play, Nadal was going to play, um, all the top guys. And that makes for really, you know, enticing uh, matchups with some of the top doubles guys because you've got two different skill sets. You got the really quick hands and the doubles guys with the strategy and all the communication, and then you got the artillery of the, the top <laughs> singles guys. So I think the fans really love that. Um, you know, the, the prize money's gone way up. Um, so you know, I think it, it does encourage singles players to want to play doubles. And um, you know, we, we actually love playing um, those those stars. You know, we played Nadal, you know, eight or nine times. Better. It, it's it's always a packed stadium, so we love it. So, Mike, explain it uh, for people to understand: is what are why are the, how are the matches shortened? So they're actually what what, what are the point systems that make it short yeah. the shorter matches? Yeah. So for ATP doubles, um, it's two sets, and they're no ad scoring. Um, so you just at at three all in a game, you give a deciding point, and then if it goes to a third set, there's a ten point tiebreaker. So matches nowadays in doubles they don't go over you know an hour and 10 minutes so you know it's going to be kind of a, a shortened sample you know you're not going to be out there uh, playing a doubles match for three hours so singles guys or singles girls or they come out there and they know they're you know it's not going to drag out all day and they'll still have um, you know energy in the tank for for their singles match Bob, you know, the one thing about doubles that's interesting is that most people who play tennis today play doubles. I mean, that's what the sport they play. They love playing doubles. So when I go to these matches, I mean, everyone is like looking and taking notes and everything. What could you, what advice would you give to people that are just certainly not any of your level, but even just like average players? Like, what do you see from normal people playing doubles that they're doing wrong and things that they could improve on that you could tell over on a radio station? Yeah, I mean, um, look, the the doubles games something uh, for over many years, and we still feel like we're we're learning stuff, and we're forty one years old. <laughs> um, and even like uh, uh, the peak, I think, is around thirty five, thirty six for a doubles player. So uh, it's a wealth of knowledge. Um, in doubles, one of the big things is first serve percentage. Um, you need to have it up in the seventies, mid seventies. In the singles, you can go for the aces. And, and go for the flashy serves. When doubles, you you often use the body serve. Um, you try to take it out of the, the returner's wings. Um, those singles players are very dangerous when they're when their arms outstretched. So we try to handcuff them, and so um, they have to move out of the way. And that's that's a tough ask to get the ball across the middle. And if you hit a ball in the middle in doubles, um, it's put away. It's picked off. So we're doing a lot of body serves that picks up our first serve percentage. And uh, we're playing pretty close to the net. Um, the game's evolved. Guys are standing one foot from the net. Um, they're making the geometry very tough for the returner. Um, anything that's high or floaty gets put away. Um, so, so, yeah, the, the, um, you know, the, the lanes for returning um, look very small these days on the doubles court. 
Right. So, and we're talking to Bob and Mike Bryan, the famous Bryan brothers, the number one doubles team in the history of tennis. Uh, I guess, Mike, I guess one of the questions I've always wanted to know is, what is your favorite match? Like, what is the match that you have to say, you're, you know, what, what would you consider your, like, the greatest match? Is your first uh, Grand Slam? Was it the Olympics? Or what would you say would be your, like, the most memorable match you ever played? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a long list. We played, uh, I think we played, like, about 1,500 matches on tour. Um, you know, obviously the, the first Grand Slam sticks out at the French Open in 03. Um, you know, just because you never know if you're going to win a slam. And we've been knocking on the door for a couple of years, and we knew we had to win a slam to get to number one in the world. And if we got to number one in the world, um, the Davis Cup captain said he'd play us. So we had a lot of pressure <laughs> on that uh, match. And we are just so energetic. We, uh, we didn't sleep for, you know, days leading up to the final um, and we played, uh, you know, like an older team of Harhouse and Kvelnikov. We ended up winning the last 16 points of the match. Wow. And it was kind of a, a blur, and we uh, kind of just woke up, and we were rolling around in the clay, you know, so happy. <laughs> um, and, and that just took a lot of the pressure off. To uh, we, we felt like we had the formula to win more of them. So that is, that where, is, that where the chest, is that where the chest pump started, the chest uh, bump started, or is it, was it before that? Yeah, well... No, it started before that, but it, we got it from the Jensen Bros, oh. uh, who won the French Open ten years before, and they were, you know, they were just a, a really funny, like, uh, entertaining team that uh, we we love, we idolize. We had posters, we wore their like all their clothes, and we started it at Stanford. So the on the cover of the Stanford Daily News after we did our first chest bump, it had a picture of us bumping, and they called it the Brian bump. So <laughs> it kind of stuck, uh, you know. We're not doing too many anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no, you guys. But we're talking to Bob and Mike Bryan. I, one, one final question is about the American tennis. I mean, there's so much discussion about where the Americans' men's tennis is going. And they're, they're, every year there seems to be another new next person. We've had uh, Franta TFO on our show twice to talk about, uh, talk about the oh, tennis. Cool. So he's you know, a, a great young American. But sort of talk about your impressions of uh, both of you can answer this question, but your impressions of, of American tennis and, and where do you think it's going in the next you know, couple years? Yeah, I mean, I, I personally think American tennis is on, um, on the upward swing. Um, you know, we don't have anyone winning grand slams yet, but I think we could be 18 months away with this new crop of player. Um, unfortunately, Federer, Nadal Djokovic, these guys have squashed a couple generations of players. We've had a lot of great players come along, but, uh, unfortunately the grand slam trophies have been, uh, choked out by those three guys. Um, for 15, 20 years. Um, but we have young guys that are going to, that are kind of waiting for these, um, the big three to, to fall away. Uh, Taylor Fritz is knock on the door of top 20. And then we have Riley Opelka, who won in Del Rey. And he's a, he's a seven footer with a humongous serve. And he, well, and he could easily win a Grand Slam soon. You mentioned Francis Tiafo. We've been talking to World Team Tennis participants, Bob and Mike Bryan, the famous Bryan brothers. Uh, they're talking about their World Team Tennis Celebrity All-Star Match presented by Barefoot Hard Seltzers to air on CBS Saturday, April 4th at 1.30. Uh, thanks a lot, guys, for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ira. Great stuff all around here tonight on Iron Sports from Coach Wade Phillips, Jared Diamond, and the Bryan brothers. We are out of time. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports.